0: It's good to be with you today. We're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke, but before we get to that this morning, um, I'm wondering what you might be afraid of in life, because, you know, there are a lot of things to be afraid of in this world, and there's a good reason to be afraid of them. Uh, what, What powers in this world do you fear? Is it nature's disasters? Do you fear demonic spirits? Do you fear the oppression of the government? The evil violence of humanity, moral corruption of our society and the degradation of our culture, just the uncertainties of life, maybe loss of a relationship or health issues, and there are certainly many, many lesser fears that we all struggle with, and particulars within all of these categories for each of us. And, of course, fear is normal and natural. In a lot of places in our life, we wouldn't want to not have fear, It would be dangerous or foolish sometimes or unhealthy to not fear things to some degree, but it's also true that we probably fear things more than we should at times. And of course, there's more to handling this kind of a question and problem in our lives than just simply looking at rational psychology or working through some philosophical solutions. Those are only part really of the bigger picture. Part of the solution and the question we want to be asking as Christians is do we believe strongly enough that Jesus Christ our Lord is in absolute control of all of these things in this world our questions that we ask should be how can we trust him more in the midst of this situation in fact how can we marvel more over his power that he puts on display over all these things Those are much better questions. Let me pray for us as we look at God's Word today. And Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning as our Lord, as our Savior, as the creator and sustainer of all things, and the one who directs everything from heaven for the benefit of your people and your church in this eternal love that you have for your people. And we pray this morning that as we look into this passage of Luke chapter 8, that you would train us to become better disciples, better followers of you. That's our goal this morning, and we pray this for your sake. Amen. So you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, or it's also printed for you in your worship folder this morning, and we're going to read the stories as we go. There are a couple stories here, but as we're going through the gospel of Luke, what you're going to notice today in our passage is that with even greater clarity than Luke has already shown us to this point in his gospel account, he's going to show us the absolute power that Jesus Christ possesses. And wants to train us in this very same lesson that Jesus was training his disciples. And that is, is that faith in the Lord Jesus, who has total and eternal power, will carry us beyond our fears to a place of greater, purer, more peaceful, and more powerful discipleship. That's really what we're looking for this morning. And these two stories that we're looking at are are tied together. Actually, Jesus is crossing a lake on purpose to go meet a demon-possessed man. I mean, how many people cross lakes these days to go see demon-possessed men? Not very many. So, it's an unusual event and purpose that he has in mind. And in each scene, we're going to see Jesus' absolute power in the first one, in verses 22 to 25, he has absolute power over nature. And in our second passage in 26 to 39, we see that he has absolute power over demons. Two of the greatest things that human beings have feared since the beginning. Well, the next section that we're looking at, we're actually starting a new section in Luke's gospel here with this story of the famous story of uh, the calming of the storm. And um, in this next section, it goes through chapter 9, verse 17, and we're going to see an escalation happening in this section, and uh, there's going to be this ratcheting up, this intensity um, in this section about seeing Jesus' power and also the challenges toward us to be believers in Jesus Christ, and the culmination of this section is the famous confession of Peter in chapter 9, verse 20, where Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. So may we grow in our faith this morning as Jesus' disciples, and as we look at these first two stories, or these two stories this morning, in the first scene we observe that Jesus has absolute power over nature. This is the second nature miracle in the Gospel of Luke. The first one, if you remember, was from chapter five, where they had that miraculous catch of fish. And this particular story of the calming of the storm, um, you know it very well because it's been retold by Matthew and Mark as well as Luke, and it vividly portrays Jesus being in absolute control. And we need to believe this as disciples of Jesus. So we have a stormy lake, and then we have a calm lake. And the stormy lake begins One day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So now we know from the gospel according to Mark, that this was a very busy day of ministry that they had just got done with, and they get into this boat, and they cross the lake, and, and likely it includes the 12. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 8 in your Bibles, in Luke 8, you remember Jesus is on this Galilean tour. Again, he would take his disciples on tours. Um, maybe it's the 12 with him again, and some of the others, and some of the women that are mentioned in this passage as well. And at first, it might appear, okay, after this busy day of work, we're going to go across the lake to some quiet place and have a nice retreat. Yeah. Well, we know Jesus had something else in mind for them. He's purposefully entering Gentile territory to go liberate a demoniac. But he doesn't tell them that yet. They cross the sea, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's about eight miles at its widest. We don't know exactly where they're crossing, but they could have been in some kind of a rowboat or a sailboat. We don't really know. Um, But the body of water, of course, sits in a unique basin where the winds can come down and create squalls out of the blue. And this particular storm is particularly violent. And remember, many of these men were experienced fishermen, experienced with these types of situations on the lake. But apparently, it's beyond their natural strength, their control, their skill level, their comfort level. And they're fearing for their lives with all these fierce winds, with the boat filling and, and swamping their boat with water. And Jesus had fallen asleep which would have been natural after a hard day's work of ministry. And it was evening, and it was common at the time to have cushions in the boat so people could take a nap. And he was also soundly sleeping, though, not just because of these things, but because of his faith in God the Father and his knowledge of the control that he has over all things as the eternal Son of God and our Savior. And this is going to become clear as our passage unfolds. So they they just wake up Jesus frantically calling out, Master, Master. Likely, they're all saying many, many different things. And Matthew records them shouting at him, Lord. And Mark records them shouting at him, Teacher. You know, and they've witnessed him doing miracles before. Perhaps they're hoping for a really good one right now. You know, the emotions are running high. Fear is running rampant. They're perishing. But Jesus is calm. They're not perishing. He is really, truly watching out for them even while he's sleeping in the boat. And then the lake is calmed. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm, and he said, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he even commands winds and water? And they obey him. So Jesus, of course, wakes up, people shouting at him, rebukes the winds and the waves, and they stop and become calm immediately, and, and Mark records for us what he says. He just simply says, peace, be still. Again in Luke, we see the power of Jesus' word. He just says something, and it happens. And it reminds us, really, of the power displayed by Yahweh in the Exodus, back in that story, in the crossing of the Red Sea. Perhaps you remember... The Lord told Moses to tell the people very simply, go forward. And they do, and the sea splits in half. And it's recorded this way in Psalm 89, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And Psalm 107 recounts the Lord's faithfulness of delivering us from all sorts of trouble in life. This is a very interesting psalm. Um, so, if, you, if you're interested in reading it, Psalm 107. It's very long, so we tend to skip over it, right? Because no one wants to read a long psalm. It takes too long. So, but it has just all these little snippets in it and stories of how God rescues us in life. And there's one example in the middle of this psalm that is well illustrated in our story. In fact, Jesus fulfills it. Yahweh incarnate with His people. If you want, you can turn there. Otherwise, just listen to it. at Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. So in this particular story, we read this. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders." But Jesus rebukes the disciples in our story, very simply saying, where's your faith? And Luke abbreviates the words of Jesus, Matthew and Mark tell us much more that Jesus said. But it's not that they didn't have faith, it's that they weren't applying the faith that they supposedly had in this particular situation. I mean, it's always really a good discipleship question and Jesus could ask that of us, I think, quite often. What what do you think? I mean, where is your faith? I mean, Jesus is teaching that faith and fear don't go together. Uh, Not in discipleship. Faith has to win over fear. This isn't a world that we live in that's just filled with chance and bad happenings. You see, that's what people who don't know our God think. They think that this is just a world full of chance happenings and bad things. But not believers in God. We believe that everything is under the control of of our God. He knows exactly what he's doing and his perfect purposes are going to be fulfilled no matter what. Just because we can't see and understand and explain them doesn't mean it's not true. And he's especially concerned for his own people, you and me. And we just need to learn to trust him more and more. Did you notice in our story that now the disciples are afraid again? They're afraid and amazed, not at the stormy lake. They're afraid and amazed at the calm lake. Really, they're afraid and amazed at Jesus. It's been a common response in Luke's gospel to see people amazed when Jesus does such powerful things. And the disciples mentioned that even the wind and the water obey Jesus. So who is he? So the recognition of him at the time might be really slow, but of course we know the answer. But then that's the point of reading and hearing the story, isn't it? It's how are we going to respond to this Jesus? this presentation where Jesus shows us who he is. Jesus has absolute power over nature. All three synoptic gospel writers take from the story the same set of discipleship lessons as you read them. Fear over faith and faith over fear. Which is it gonna be? And faith is supposed to become stronger and defeat our fear as disciples of Jesus. So here are four four quick discipleship lessons that we get when we read this story in Luke or Matthew or Mark. And that is, first of all, Christian discipleship is going to involve going on boat rides with Jesus. That's the first lesson. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's going to take you on dangerous boat rides. That's what he does with our life. But we also know at the end of those rides, that there is great glory that's gonna be given to him and the danger makes it worth it. In fact, it makes it all the more glorious when you get to the end. At the time, of course, danger can be a cause of fear, but it could also be a reason to have faith because glory is coming and he calls calls us to trust him. So that's the first lesson, Christian discipleship involves boat rides. The second one is that we need to really trust God's ways of doing things his ways of accomplishing his plans, especially when it comes to how he wants to advance the gospel, his gospel, in this world. And often it involves, often it involves ch- the churning up of our lives, confusing twists in what would normally be the perfect plot line we've set out for our life that we don't fully comprehend. When progress isn't what we hoped it would be or what we expect it to be, instead it's disturbing and a painful process. We need to trust God and his plans for the gospel because they will be glorious when we get to the end. The third lesson is that we should stay truly amazed at who Jesus really truly is. Give awe to Jesus, our Lord, the eternal Savior. We don't need to be afraid of stormy lakes. We don't need to be afraid of calm lakes. We should be standing in awe of who Jesus is And we show this strong faith in him and his power and his purposes by staying in this constant state of amazement. And it's going to help us trust him in the midst of loss, life storms, give us perspective, keep up our hope today. And fourth, in our fear, when we do have a lapse of faith, we can cry out to him. And you know what, just like in the story, he's going to rescue us because there's not a person in this room today, I'm confident who hasn't had a lapse of discipleship faith. We've all given in to fear in our lives. And we know that Jesus will allow this discipleship failure for a while because he's gonna create within us a desire for greater and greater discipleship success. And he's gonna build faith in us and increase it as we go through these things. So those are four quick observations. Maybe you have some of your own from this passage. It's a well-preached, often-preached passage. But let's not forget the direct event itself. It often gets overlooked. And that is, is that nature is under the absolute authority of God. God controls the weather. It doesn't just happen. Psalm 135 that we read this morning, I'll read it again. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps, He causes. The vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his freshers. Somebody shouted out, like, guess who? And the snowstorm, right, that we just had. And we lived in California for a long time. All the earthquakes and fires and these things, they're all at his disposal. Perhaps this is the most difficult lesson of all for us to learn today in our society. That God has purposes in what he does with his nature. And it doesn't always involve getting rescued. It Doesn't always involve that. Faith in the Lord Jesus who has total and eternal power is what's gonna carry us beyond our fears to a really good place. A place that is filled with greater, pure, more peaceful and more powerful discipleship than we've known before. That's why the story's here. But that's only the beginning of the story because really, The story has just begun, because now we end up and we see that Jesus has absolute power over demons when they get to the other side of the lake. And both Matthew and Mark also record the story in the same way that Jesus had a purpose. It wasn't that they just sort of happened to end up where they happened to end up, but Jesus had a destination and a purpose in place. And this encounter is going to be one of the strongest illustrations of Jesus' power over evil in this world because he's going to go up against many demons, outnumbered. Jesus will be outnumbered thousands to one. Now, you notice that this has also been building in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 4, verse 33, we saw Jesus uh, get rid of a demon. was so just one demon. And then we learned last week about Mary Magdalene, seven demons went off. Well, today, we got thousands of demons in this man. And so, our story continues. There's this possessed man we read about in verses 26 to 27. Well, Jesus then liberates the man in verses 28 to 33. And finally, the townspeople and the man respond in verse 34 and following. So, then they sailed to the country of the uh, the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So they arrive at the midpoint on the other side, the east side of the lake. It's the Gentile region, uh, known as Decapolis. And the region has a lot of possible names, but perhaps here uh, in Luke, Gerasenes is the best reading. But as soon as the boat lands, Jesus gets welcomed, if you will, by a man possessed by demons. Matthew records for us two men very briefly in his story. Perhaps he had another source, or maybe it's that Mark and Luke are focusing on the main one anyway. But the torment that this man went through is amazing. This man's demon possession is described here as going around naked for quite a while, without proper hygiene, without basic human dignity. He'd been living in the tombs for a while. He wasn't living at home anymore with his family, isolated, these little chambers. Is where the lepers and poor people and demoniacs would often live. If you look ahead to verse 29, the parenthetical statement in your Bible there, and also from Mark and Matthew, we learn a lot more about his experience and situation because occasionally he'd get seized by these demons many times and he'd start crying out loudly and injure himself. And so the people of the town would try to bound him with chains. And part of that would be compassion that he wouldn't hurt himself or hurt other people. But eventually, because of the demons and the strength, he would burst these. And so the demons and drive him out to the desert where he now lives and avoids people. So these demons, you see, had this man and the whole region under, his, under their control, not just this one man. People lived in fear without hope in God. That is until the Son of God lands on shore to liberate them with his power. You see, Jesus is a one-man liberation force in this story. You know, demon possession is a very mysterious and a very cruel reality of evil. I have many friends in parts of the world who minister the gospel who have very similar experiences to what we're reading this morning. So don't demythologize this text like our culture tends to do in ignorance and actually even dishonor this poor man who's suffering. This man was truly possessed, whether or not he had some psychological illness as well. It's true that demons are, were particularly open in their activity during the time of the Messiah, but evil's alive and well. And demons remain quite active in the world, possessing people, providing influence over people, promoting lies. In fact, next time you're overseas, take a break from your nice tour and go travel around with some missionaries. Maybe they can show you some, some places. Well, then we get to Jesus liberating this man in verse 28, and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let him enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned." Now, there was a commentator from the 11th century, his name is Theophylact, not probably somebody you read occasionally very often, what happened upon him, and he makes a very interesting and insightful comment about this storyline, something I think we miss often. And he says this, while the men are in the boat, so picture the storyline, right? So they're still in the boat, and Jesus steps out on land. And so he says, while the men are in the boat, doubting what manner of man this is, that even the winds and sea obey him, the demons show up to tell them. That's who tells them. That's who knows who he is. The demoniac falls at Jesus' feet. It's not true worship, of course. The demons are speaking through the man, remember, and they want to be left alone, basically. But they identify Jesus with the strongest Christological title in all the Gospel of Luke, the son of the Most High God. And the Most High God is reminiscent of the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Daniel. Perhaps they're trying to control Jesus by being able to pronounce His name, but more likely, they're begging Him because it's repeated three times, they beg not to be tortured before the time. Demons know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God and they hate Him for it. They hate Him because He is the Son of God and everything about Him, and they hate Him for His incarnation, His becoming man, because they know His intention is to save humanity. Now, of course, they don't know exactly how He's going to get that done yet, But we do because we've read the rest of the book of Luke. Soon Jesus is going to be dying on a cross in our place for our sins and be resurrected from the dead. And those who have faith in him will be freed, liberated from sin and all of its consequences and the devil and all of his demons. The demons especially hate him as the redeemer, as the savior of mankind, because they already have everyone in their grasp and don't want to let them go. The demons hate Jesus because he's going to get eternal glory, and they know their time on this earth is short. And so they're basically accusing him of searching them out too early to torment them. They beg Jesus, the Son of God, not to send them to hell right now or into some other place of torment awaiting judgment, as has already been done. In Jude 1, we read, 6, The angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. They don't want to go there or some other spot where Jesus might put them. And then in verse 29, we read that Jesus had already given the command of exorcism. He had already commanded them to leave. The details just fall out for us in verses 30 through 33. And he asks the man his name, and the demons answer, and they have to surrender and say to him, legion. Well, a Roman legion would have about five to 6,000 men in it. And Mark tells us the herd of swine... About 2,000 pigs. So how many demons were in this man? And how'd they even get in there? We don't even know precisely. We don't understand this is a very large evil army of them. Jesus is way outnumbered here, and that's what we're supposed to notice here, is that he'll conquer them all with just a word. And they continue to beg. It's mentioned three times. To beg Jesus not to send them to the abyss, to eternal destruction. They requested and said to be allowed to inhabit the herd of swine. And Jesus grants them permission, and in Matthew's gospel, he just says one word, go. And the demons leave the man, and they enter the pigs, and they proceed to destroy the pigs violently, because demons have a hatred for all God's creatures to begin with. And the destruction of this herd is going to stir up more animosity in the people, as we'll see in the city, toward Jesus. In other words, it's their final act of evil as they're forced to leave town because Jesus kicks them out of the area. Now, we don't know where the demons go. We just know they're gone. But the point that's being made by this dramatic act is that this one man's freedom is more valuable than a whole herd of pigs. The dramatic display, because it would have been quite dramatic, great the bondage was for this man that he was subject to these demons, and then how great a freedom he has. Also, it illustrates that the evil spirits are gone from the man and and the whole town and the area, they've been dismissed. Interestingly, Jesus lets these demons go free somewhere else, and likely they're still somewhere in the world working evil. And we can't discern his purposes in doing this. I mean, this is the ancient question of God's use of evil. But we can be assured that it's also true that Jesus is still using them, wherever they are, for his own purposes. And then the townspeople and the man responded, verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and, to- and told in that city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone from, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So the herdsmen run to town. They have to tell the owner, of course, first of all, and the whole town, those in the country, what just happened. Many people went out to investigate the happening uh, with the pigs and their infamous demoniac that they all knew about. And eventually they come to Jesus, and they find sitting at his feet, clothed and in his right mind, this man. This demoniac turned disciple, and they're terrified, wondering, is this a good thing? Or is this a bad thing? Is this better for us or worse? So they return to the city again, and they tell people what they find. The demoniac was made well. Now that everything's safe, of course, now those people show up. And from the whole area, and they go out to meet Jesus, and they confront him and ask him to leave. They're afraid that he might be some kind of an evil sorcerer in their region, or that they might suffer more personal loss than just a bunch of pigs. And he started to think that maybe it was better, perhaps, with the demoniac around. And they were more fearful than Jesus of Jesus here than they were of the demons, but in the wrong manner for both. Did you notice that? They fear Jesus for the wrong reasons and the demons for the wrong reasons. They don't want Jesus' salvation, but they preferred what they thought they had was a truce with the demons. Actually, it's a very common scenario these days. People just tend to and accept, and places will placate demons um, in order to just sort of live their life the best they can. So Jesus leaves them, returns across the lake, but he's going to leave them with a witness, this man. And the man begs to go with Jesus and his disciples, and you can imagine why. But Jesus doesn't allow it. Instead, he commissions him as the first missionary to the Gentiles. Actually, see, the Apostle Paul is not the first missionary to the Gentiles. This guy is. And he instructs the man to return to his home, to his life, and declare how many great things that God has just done for him. That's exactly what the demoniac disciple did, proclaiming Jesus throughout the whole city. And who knows what happened in that city? Jesus has absolute power over demons. And when we read this account, how demons act, what their end is, it should breed confidence within us as Christians The demons are going to be judged, and so we have really no need to be afraid of demonic activity in this world. And so we should be emboldened with the gospel to go on the assault uh, against the occult and false religions and and liberate people uh, with the gospel that are oppressed by demonic forces. You see, no place on earth is safe for a demon if a Christian shows up with the gospel. So verse 39 is the focal point of the story and really both stories. You can circle verse 39 if you'd like and remember that one. It simply says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And, of course, we can't miss the application, right? I mean, that's our commission. We know it's not a secret. That's why the story's there to tell our stories. Our stories, likewise, of getting our lives reclaimed from bondage to sin. And it has many, many manifestations in our life. I mean, how much? Did you notice how he says that? Tell people how much God has done for you. How much has God done for you? Go tell people your story. You know, after examining passages like this in the Gospel of Luke, we're led to ask, who is this Jesus? But I mean, you know who he is. Of course, we've been following very closely as readers of Luke's Gospel. We know exactly who he is, and we already put our faith in Jesus, but Luke wants us to more fully realize who Jesus is by putting it this way in this Gospel account. Jesus is the one who has absolute power over nature, absolute power over demons, And seeing and sensing this power in this passage should affect our discipleship. It should not affect our discipleship in just sort of a general way. Yeah, I went away today and I learned two things. Jesus has power over nature and he has power over demons. Not in the abstract. No, no, no. It's going to take time. It's going to take time where we spend time thinking about this passage, rereading it, and praying over it so that it impacts our life and the way we live our lives, that Jesus has absolute power, and that then faith can carry us beyond the fears that we have. Assuming you want to get rid of those fears, to a place of a greater, purer, more peaceful, and more powerful discipleship. That's what Luke wants. What do you want for your life? Do you want to be liberated? Are you tired of being afraid of certain things? The second application to think about, is that Jesus is really always watching out for his own disciples. He's always doing that, even when they're so clueless, as we read through the Gospel accounts. Even us, when we live our lives and we're so clueless sometimes, Jesus is watching out for us, and he can deliver us from any danger that comes into our lives, and we have to trust him and apply our faith because we know who he is, and we know his character. So how do we respond? How do you respond when Jesus rescues you? Like, very practically, uh, tangibly, real ones, you know. There are those types of situations where, like like in the boat, we cry out to God, rescue me now, don't you see what's happening to me? Maybe it's seconds before a car accident. Or maybe it's when acute pressures of life are just staring you right in the face, reality you weren't ready for. Or some scary situation or disaster, and he rescues you. Are you ready for the next crisis with greater faith? Are we living differently in the way we respond to God's mercy? In fact, you know, this is a really excellent evangelistic way to approach people because many people have these kinds of stories in their life where they don't necessarily explain them right, but they'll, they'll talk about situations that were really terrifying, and they'll talk about somebody, something, somehow rescuing them, and they'll, often people will make a promise to God to do something. So I ask them about their promise. Very interesting conversation often where they lead. But then, you know, there are ones like, you know, those are like being in the boat, but then there are things that we're not expecting. That God just decides to be merciful and rescue us from situations, sort of like the demoniac. I mean, you think about this poor guy's life. Do you think he ever thought his life would ever be any different? He's going to live the rest of his life and die like that. And we probably all have experienced at some, some point in our life where we've shared in other people's experiences where they have some illness and God miraculously heals them. And we rejoice that God has done that. Or sometimes we know people, that they just come from such a dysfunctional life and family and patterns of behavior, and it's like, it's just never going to be any different. And then somehow... God brings them back to a position of like being a normal person. Or maybe it's you or maybe it's others you know that are just trapped in sin habits that seem to have such a stranglehold, there's no way we're escaping. But then somehow God brings liberation. Or situations where we think that relationships are just going to go from bad to worse to worse to worse and never get any better. But then somehow God miraculously changes that relationship around or that predicament, and the list goes on and on. Do we marvel at the power and the freedom that God grants in these situations? Are we truly glad that oppression and evil is gone, or do we fearfully long for its presence again? I mean, it's sad, but often we do because we get so used to living with it, and it's predictable, and in a way, it seems controllable to us, and then when God changes things, it changes our life. third thing we might focus on is in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Again, here's the emphasis on the salvation mission of God in Christ. It's all over Luke. That's why the subtitle for our series is Salvation Now for All the World. It's everywhere in this book. That's what disciples do. And he tells this man in the story that he's supposed to go talk to people and tell them about how much God has done for him to people who don't care. They don't want to hear the stories. They don't appear to want to have anything to do with Jesus at the moment. Just get out of here. But this demoniac was faithful, and he told the truth to people, whether they were interested or opposed or not, about how much God has done for him. what it's like to be free, from all those demons. And who knows, maybe someday you'll get used to convert a whole town of disinterested, fearful garrisons who are being blinded by demons and share with them the gospel. And finally, may we see in a sense that just as Jesus saves us from things like storms and like demons in our story, even more so he saves us from a much greater enemy, something that would destroy our souls eternally, and that's sin. And this passage in Luke has astounded us, I hope, with the power of Jesus, but we should also let these episodes function as an illustration of something even more powerful, and that's salvation. And we have a lot to consider from this passage in prayer on what God has done for us in our lives. Jesus Christ, the one who would die on a cross to save us from our sins and be raised for our life, Jesus has done so much for us. Let me pray for us. But Lord Jesus, we are astounded at your power that we read about faithfully recorded in your word in this passage this morning. Your power over nature is absolute. And we live in a world that doesn't believe that. So Lord, we pray that you would give us stronger faith to believe what we read in the scriptures, that you have absolute faith over demons. And Jesus, we praise you for all your rescues that you bring into our life and probably the many, many stories if we just sat down and thought for a while about what you've done throughout different seasons in our lives and how you've rescued us from crises, even from situations that were just beyond imagination or were due to our own stupidity that you've you've rescued us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that like this man who was healed in our story this morning that we would continue the salvation mission that, that you're on and telling people about the gospel of salvation that... Can save their souls and liberate them as well. And we pray for us as a people here at Calvary Church that you would make us more faithful disciples that are filled with faith so that fear just disappears in our walk with you and that we would be disciples that bring great glory to your name. And we pray this for your sake. Amen.